0: said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Let's pray together. Our great Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. So rich, so deep. And your word is Uh, so complex, speaking to every area of our lives and uh, areas that we have questions about, areas that we don't have, didn't know we had questions about. And so we pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit to instruct us, lead us as a church, shape the culture of our church through your word. And so we open our minds, we open our hearts to what you have to teach us this morning. We pray in Jesus' mighty name, amen. So last Sunday, if you were here last Sunday for Easter, uh, we looked at this passage, the resurrection of Jesus, and we talked about the meaning of uh, Jesus' resurrection. If you were uh, here last week, you know that I made a brief mention of the role of women in this passage. And so... uh, Uh, And so this week we would be uh, coming back to this passage to actually look in more detail at what God has to say about the role of these two women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, uh, this mysterious Mary, uh, who are at the tomb of Jesus during his resurrection. And so we are going to read this passage again, now asking the question, with the topic in mind of women in ministry, how God works through women in the church and in the world, and you might ask, for various reasons, why do we need to talk specifically about the question of women in ministry? Why do we have to single out women? And I'll tell you why we need to talk about that. It's because we are a church that is called a, a complementarian church, which means that we're a church that recognizes that in the creation account uh, in the Bible, God made man and woman together in a garden which was a ministry context. They were doing ministry there. That's where God came and met with them. It was like a little temple or a little sanctuary. And it says that it was not good for the man to be alone, so God made a helper fit for him. And that word for fit, it's literally in Hebrew, it's the word opposite. God made the woman as a helper that was opposite him, who was a complement to him. They were different, but it wasn't good until that compliment was made. Now, many people in our culture will uh, hear that passage, especially the word helper, and say, you know, this is the backwards view of the Bible. That's how the Bible views women. They're just the, the, isn't that cute? They're the helper, you know, the assistant, you know, to go wait on the man when he needs her. Well, that's actually not what the word helper, the word "azer," is, the, is the, uh, the Hebrew word. Um, because the word helper in the Bible is largely used in reference to God himself. God is the great helper. So, for example, uh, Psalm 46, which is a psalm that's talking about this great battle that was going to happen. You know, Israel, God's people were being sieged by the, uh, uh, by the Assyrians. And they had this prayer. They said, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Or, you know, Psalm uh, 121, I I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes from you, O Lord, maker of heaven and earth. So a helper is not a little assistant. (laughs) A helper is a description of strength. It's an ally. When you are in battle. Someone that's going to help you and rescue you. Um, And so the statement that the woman is a helper. Really says something about that there was a deficiency. A weakness in the man. And there was some kind of strength. That she provided to help him with. And so as one author puts it. Genesis tells us that life. Is not good without women. And that with the women. It is very good. And so. But what's very interesting about the Bible is you, read, you go on from the Bible and you hear that passage you say, wow, the, the helper, girl power, right? She's like, you know, the Lord of hosts who comes with his armies. You know, this, this incredible expression of the strength and importance of, you know, uh, of, of women and, and God's purpose in the lives and giftings and ministry of women. But then you read through the rest of the Bible and we find consistently that the offices in in God's people, the church, the roles of elders and deacons in the church, are over and over again, is um, exclusively men who serve in those offices. So throughout the Old Testament, all the elders of the Old Testament, they were all men. And then you come to Jesus' ministry, and we know Jesus was very countercultural. He uh, challenged the power structures of his g- generation and his culture, and yet when it came time, and he had women who were his disciples and followed him, but when it came time to, for Jesus to establish the leadership structure, of the church he was building, it was 12 male disciples. And then you see again the Apostle Paul goes throughout the Mediterranean. He's planting churches like ours in all these communities. And he insists that the officers, the, the elders, and the, uh, the deacons in the church are men. And I'll also add that this view has been the global view of the church throughout history. The, by far the majority view of the church throughout history. And so we're a church that has said, you know, as unpopular of a view as that is in our culture, it's, it's the clear teaching of the Bible, and we'd be unfaithful to the Lord's instructions if we did otherwise. And I think actually, you know, it's a tremendous blessing that we have a church where the men take seriously their faith. What do they believe? men of conviction, we have men that are leading in our church, and it's a great blessing. I've had many women in our church say what a great blessing it is to have men, you know, because oftentimes, throughout the history of the church, it has been the women who read their Bibles, who pray, who serve, who take their faith seriously, and it's a blessing when men do that. But the reason that I want to give a sermon on women in ministry is because in a complementarian church like ours, there can be a tendency to think that since God has called men to be the office bearers of the church, in our case, elders and deacons, that can bleed into a general sense that men are in charge and the women in general are supposed to submit to them. It can create this general uh, culture, that, and that's a real thing. And maybe some of you feel that in our church. You might feel that in our church. But that's not in the Bible. The Bible gives us a picture of men and women side by side doing the work of the kingdom on the front lines together. And it is not good when the men are alone without the women. And this is why we need a sermon on women in ministry. And and it's critical that our church think carefully about this topic, how women are regarded in our life together. And you may not know this, but the leaders in our church have begun a conversation about this very topic that about a year ago, um, I wrote a paper about women in ministry that our elders uh, gave to, describing what does the Bible have to say about the role of women in the church. And we gave that to uh, the, the wives of the elders and deacons and Jesse Clausen, who's our, um, our uh, women's uh, discipleship lead. And we said, we, this is what we think the Bible says about women and how important they are in the life of the church. Will you give us some feedback about what is our culture like? Where are the places that were inconsistent? Where, do we, What questions do we need to be asking? What do we need to be thinking about? And they, they gave us a two-page uh, gracious uh, response, and this is something that our elders are working through right now. We're having a conversation about, we're reading books about, and actually during that process, as we as a, just our local church was beginning to ask that question about the culture of women in ministry in our church, our denomination appointed a study committee for the denomination of, as a whole, Asking the question, "What does the Bible say about women in ministry?" and that report actually just came out this week. I haven't read it yet, but it's 63 pages on this. And I, the, the the people that were on the committee that wrote that are I really have a lot of respect for. I think it's going to be a very good document. If you're interested in that, you can go online. Just Google PCA Women in Ministry paper, and you could read that. I think it, it would be excellent for many of us to be to be reading that. But um, so there are a number of questions about this topic that our church needs to wrestle with and answer that we haven't done yet. We're in that process. And so this morning, I want to use this passage as a guide to give us four underlying principles that should shape the culture of our church. So this isn't going to answer all the questions. You might have many questions about this topic for our church. I hope this is a conversation starter, but I'm going to give us four principles that I think are important guides for us as a church as we wrestle with this okay so this morning um, uh, four principles of what the gospel says the resurrection story tells us about the role of women in the life and mission of the church okay so first principle is this is that our women our women are trustworthy Some of these you might say are totally obvious. Why am I even saying that? I think I'll tell you why I need to say some of these things. Now, if you were here last week, you already heard me say that in the resurrection account, God chose that the chief eyewitnesses to the resurrection were these two women. And, uh, you know, one of the ways that ancient authors would write an eyewitness account is by including the names of the eyewitnesses, and they would write the names of the people into the account, and that would be a clue to you to know whose account was this that's being recorded. And so when you look in verse 1, it says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now when Matthew includes their names, what he's basically saying to the reader is that when I'm writing this, these women... Are the chief eyewitnesses. If you have a question about this, they're still alive while I'm writing this. You can go track them down. They are the main witnesses that God has chosen to assure us that this happened. And this is um, remarkable because uh, this was a culture that thought that women were not trustworthy, they were not even credible witnesses in a court of law. God did not view them that way, God viewed them as trustworthy. And actually, I I put a a quote for you. If you turn to page uh, three in your bulletin, I put a quote from one of the commentaries I've been reading on Matthew. This is Dale Bruner. And where he talks about Mary Magdalene, this is what he says. In the records of all four Gospels, this one woman stands immovably by Jesus, even in and past his death. It is as if she will never, ever leave him. Even when he has had to leave her. She is there when he dies, there when he is buried. Actually, her name appears two other times if you go in the passage right before this. Mary Magdalene's name appears two more times. Uh, so she was at the burial. And there now again at the graveside the first day of the week. Only she and the mysterious other Mary come Sunday morning. Where are the many admirers of the triumphal entry? Where are the apostles and disciples? The many miraculous healed. Are there only two women left in the movement? It's this great statement. It's like the church has been withered down to these two women who are the only ones left believing, following Jesus. It's an incredible regard that that the Lord has for them. And they see, they watch the crucifixion, they go to the burial, they watch Jesus be buried, and they go and they see the empty tomb. God viewed them as trustworthy. Now, the reason that this is important for us is because there can be a culture in complementarian churches like ours where women are not viewed as trustworthy, but women are viewed with suspicion. And the biblical reason for that is because when you go to the beginning of the Bible at the, in Genesis 3 during the fall, there is a line where it says, when it's talking about the effects of the fall on humanity, it's the, the Lord says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And that exact Hebrew construction appears in the very next chapter in Genesis chapter 4 where Cain is about to murder his brother and the sin is arising in his heart and the Lord says the exact same thing, sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And we look at these two passages and say, wow, the Lord says the woman has a desire for the husband and sin has a desire for Cain. There's this parallel between sin and woman. And we say, well, maybe... uh, women have a desire to get control of us and to destroy us, just like sin has a desire to get control of us. And so we read that and we say, oh, we better be on guard. This becomes the lens by which we view the women. This happens in churches. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe this is your view. Um, Now, I've had godly women tell me, "I, I think there's some truth in that. We might be tempted to try try to control the men in our lives but whatever level of suspicion we have towards women it should be at least as much towards the men that same passage says that the men are going to rule over domineer over the women and be harsh with them and uh, um, whatever suspicion we have towards women we need to equally have towards men we are all sinners affected by the fall but should that be the main lens through which we see the women in our church Should it be Genesis 3 or should it be Galatians 3? This is what Galatians 3 says. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Shouldn't that be the lens by which we see everyone in the church, men and women, of who they are in Christ, washed, given a new heart? The law of God's been written on their hearts, filled with the Holy Spirit, clothed with gifts in order to help, you know, to do the Lord's work in building the kingdom? Isn't that the lens with which we should see one another? And so the first thing that we see in this passage is God's view that women are trustworthy, and actually in this case, more trustworthy than the men. The men were absent, and the women were given this great responsibility. Well, you know, someone may hear that and say, well, I know Bible also, doesn't the Bible also say that Eve was deceived? Is that, does the Bible say that something that, that women have a tendency to be deceived? Which is an interesting comment because if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, when Adam and Eve were first put in the garden, um, you see that the commandment to not eat of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil That commandment was given to Adam before the woman was made. He was entrusted with that word. And he had a responsibility to teach the words to the woman. And so Genesis 2 and 3 is really about Adam failing to guard the doctrine that God had given them. And I want to say this. that One of the ways that we understand the role of elders in our church is that elders are given the responsibility to guard the doctrine and the purity of our church. That is, when you think of what do the elders do in our church, they guard the doctrine and the purity. And we should realize that that is a narrow calling. That is not all the ministry of our church. It's not even the glory of a church. You know, when you come to a church, are you like, you know, this church is so good at, like, kicking out false teachers and excommunicating people. I just love this church. That's not the glory of the church. The glory of the church is that that people are loved in the love of Christ and the outsiders are being welcomed in and we're learning about who Christ is. And so the work of the elders is not the glory of the church. And actually, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that the glory of the man is a woman who's doing, you know, that she is the kind of shining radiance, you know, the perfection of what humanity is in some, some strange way. And so we should be alert to the fact that even though Adam failed his responsibility in the garden. ...to guard the doctrine of his ministry, the woman was deceived during a theological conversation. And so this is a a second principle that we want to look at in this passage. Not only that our women are trustworthy, but second, that our women are disciples first. What, you know, when we say that we should view the women in our church as as who they are in Christ... ...filled with the Spirit, then we should regard everyone as disciples... And, you know, um, part of our process as leaders, uh, we've been reading a book uh, by a woman named uh, Amy Bird who wrote a book called No Little Women, which is about the culture of women in the church. And uh, the title No Lim- Little Women comes from a verse in 2 Timothy where the Apostle Paul says this, where he's, he's warning the church about false teachers. And this is what he says, for among them, among those false teachers are those who creep into households and capture little women. So that's what he says. No little we want no little women. So or weak women is sometimes is, is, is how it's translated. And it says, these women who are burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. And what Amy Byrd argues, I think powerfully in this book, is that um, To have a church with no little women, the women of our church need to be discipled in their minds with a robust theology. And oftentimes the church does not view that women need to be discipled in that way. It's like women are treated like in a different class. And that can look like a couple of different things. That can look like errors in two different ways. One error can be that, you know, we say, oh, you know, women are into feelings and relationships. And so you know, you might have on Sunday morning or this deep theology that's being taught from the pulpit, and then there's a women's Bible study, where who cares what they're studying? And it could be some you know trash or really bad theology, and who cares? You know, as long as they're kind of relating to one another, that's all that really matters. And what are we saying? We're not treating them like disciples who need to be taught. And praise God, we have a women's discipleship lead. It a totally different vision. You know, Jesse uh, has this vision for women studying the Bible thinking theologically, thinking deeply and thinking and being trained, and that has to be the vision of what it means to be a woman in our church. That's, that's If you're a woman and maybe that's a t- thought that you've had that I don't need to have my theology worked out. I don't need to have thought through my theology. You are a disciple of Jesus. Yes, you do. Every part of your heart and mind should be shaped by him. But there's another tendency um, which uh, is a tendency that's in what's called the biblical womanhood movement, which is a movement that takes the Bible very seriously and says, you know, the Bible says some really important things to women. And so that approach to discipleship puts all the emphasis on the verses of the Bible that are directed towards women. So, you know, Genesis 2 being a helper. Proverbs 31, about the Proverbs 31 woman. You know, Ephesians 5, wives submit to your husbands. And so all of a sudden what happens is that what it means to be discipled is narrowed to these few verses that address women. And you might ask the question, why does the Bible have so few verses addressing women about being a Christian? Why are there so few verses? It's because God views them as disciples. And the whole Bible is written for disciples. And so every text that, and so when it comes to discipling women, should we, is it important to work through wives submit to your husbands and Janet? You know, what does it mean to be a helper? Yes, that's all important. But also you need to have a doctrine of the Trinity. You have to have a doctrine of the sacraments. You have to have a doctrine of the church, the doctrine of justification by faith, a uh, doctrine of the new creation, the resurrection. You need a biblical theology. All of these things are what it means to be a, wo- a woman who's a disciple of Jesus. We need a full picture. And in this passage we see that these women, it's not about homemaking. I'm Sorry, it's not even about being a wife or a mother. These are all good, important things. Here are these women that are going into a violent context where their Lord was just crucified by Roman soldiers. And they're walking by these Roman soldiers to go to the tomb to pay honor to their Lord. This is a tremendous amount of courage. And we don't know much. You know, There's a bunch of Marys in the Gospels. We don't know which Mary is which. But we do know that there was another Mary and well, who went and sat at the feet of Jesus and learned from him. He was her rabbi. And her sister Martha, we read in the call to worship today, had a theological conversation with Jesus about the resurrection of the dead. What's it going to happen? These were thinking, intelligent women. And, um, and what happens is when we have this vision of the women of our church, once we have that robust theological vision of discipleship of the women of our church, in our church then we can understand it in third insight from this passage okay first that our women are trustworthy our women are disciples first third our women are called to preach the gospel and specifically in this passage to men the women are called to preach the gospel to men and these women they come to the tomb of Jesus and an angel meets them there and then look at what it says in verse 5 but the angel said to the women Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. This is the first evangelism. The first proclamation of the gospel is going to come from these women to the disciples who are going to be the leaders in the formation of the global church who are going to write the Bible. These women are going to announce the gospel to him. So our women are called to preach the gospel. Now, some of you are going to immediately say, well, you know, I've been at Christ Church for a while. I haven't seen a woman give a sermon my whole time here. So how can you say that women are supposed to preach the gospel and there's no women giving sermons in this church? Well, we need to explain that. I think that the Bible recognizes two different kinds of proclamation. There is an authoritative teaching and proclamation that requires what I've talked about, the guarding of the doctrine, purity of the church. There's also a general teaching that we all do for one another, a proclamation. And we're all going to learn from one another about who Christ is, that um, uh, uh, teaching and admonishing one another. And the reason we do not have women giving sermons Is Because there are two places in the Bible, you might know these verses, that talk about women being silent in the church. And if you've read those verses, maybe they're horrifying to you. Maybe that I just said that was horrifying to you. Women being silent in the church, what what are you talking about? Well, both of those passages are really important to read them in context. And one of the, you know, the first, uh, because both cases, it's talking about the authoritative establishment of the church's doctrine. That's what is being talked about. So, for example, there's one passage, 1 Corinthians 14, which is talking about a worship service where in the early church they didn't have a New Testament. And so they would have prophets who would get up and they would give the teaching. And the Apostle Paul says that there are certain men among you who are supposed to weigh what the prophets are saying. They're supposed to evaluate what the prophets are saying and determine, is this really inconsistent with the gospel? And so it's in that setting in which the evaluative process of the teaching that's happening in the church, that the elders are these others who are supposed to weigh what is being said. That responsibility is exclusively given to men who have been chosen by the church for that responsibility. It's the authoritative teaching. It's the evaluating. It's in that context that women are supposed to say, I need the men, and specifically the elders in the church in my life, to guard us. The other passage, very similar, in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says, I I do not permit a woman to teach and to have authority over a man. And in Greek, those two words, to teach and to have authority, they go together. This is authoritative teaching. That God has called certain men to guard the authoritative teaching of of the church. We as a church, we have to face those passages to be faithful to the scriptures. But that's not all that the Bible says. Because you come to other passages like Acts 18. Acts 18 tells a story about Apollos. Apollos was one of the great preachers of the early church. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. He knew the Old Testament inside and out. He was just compelling when people listened to him. And there was a, a woman and a man priscilla and aquila who are listening to him preach and they realize you know he's missing some pieces of the gospel he only knows about john's baptism there's some more things that need to be explained to him about jesus and so in acts 18 it says but when priscilla and aquila heard him they took him and explained to him the way of god more accurately and what's remarkable about that verse is that priscilla is listed first the woman she was probably the primary instructor and teacher Here is one of the great leaders of the early church, and his theological instruction and formation came through a woman. She taught him, she trained him, she prepared him. And so, our church culture should reflect both of these truths that God has appointed certain men to guard the doctrine of our church. But also, together as a community, we are going to be learning from one another constantly, men and women alike. And forgive me, I even need to say this. But every man in this church should believe that they are going to learn essential insights into the gospel from the women in our community. Every man in our church should expect that they are going to learn essential insights about the gospel from the women in our church. If that was true of Apollos, it should be true of us. And I'll tell you, that will only happen if we are listening, if we're humble enough to listen, okay? Um, And I'll just tell you, you know, we have a church that is filled with immensely smart, gifted, godly women. Uh, Many are very educated, industrious, creative, wise. And, you know, over and over again, I've had the women in our church tell me that this balanced view is really what they long for. They say, on the one hand, I, I long for the men in our church. To know what they believe. I long to have men in our church who guard what, that we are teaching the truth and defend this church. Um, But also, we want men who are humble and care about what we have to say and what we have to contribute. We want to be a part of building God's kingdom. We want to be working side by side and using our gifts. Okay, so that's the vision of what the Bible paints for us of the culture of our church. This is a good desire. Okay, And this leads to a fourth point from this passage. So we have that our, what do we say about, first of all, the women in our church, we view them through the lens of, of who they are in Christ. They're trustworthy. They're filled with the spirit. They're disciples first. We should expect, if you're a woman, that your mind theologically needs to be formed. You need to have convictions about what is the truth of God's word say. And that our women, because they have insights into who Christ is, they're going to teach us. They're going to teach all of us about who Jesus is. Fourth principle is this. Our women communicate God's direction to men. Our women are going to communicate God's direction to men. And in this passage, the women not only preach the gospel to the men, but also they give them directions from Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet, worshiped him then Jesus said to them do not be afraid go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see uh, and they will see me Jesus gave his directive to the disciples through these women now we're a church that is should be constantly asking the question where is Jesus leading us where is Jesus calling us what is the ministry that we should be doing where is God opening doors what, what parts of the, our commands in the scriptures are we missing? We, we should be constantly asking that question. And one of the tendencies of a complementarian church like ours is that we can take the Bible's instructions about certain men guarding the doctrine and the purity of the church, and we can apply that to all the leadership teams that run the church. And that's an example of what we call going beyond what is written. So there are certain hard truths for our culture to to hear from the scriptures. We need to face those hard truths. But we need to be careful that those scriptures that give some restriction do not bleed over into the church as a whole. Legalism is the habit of adding man-made restrictions to the commands that God has clearly laid out in the scriptures. And we must be vigilant to avoid legalism. And so... um, As our uh, session and elders have uh, gone through this process, one of the most important voices in determining the wise way forward for our ministry as a church is the voice of our women. And I think it's okay, probably as a Bible, to say, generally speaking, men and women are different. That's okay. Think differently. You know, approach things differently. Have different convictions. Tend to. That's not, you know, know, we don't want to say that everyone is a certain way. And so in our church, it's important that Every leadership team has women, the voice of women, on there dir- giving direction and vision for where that ministry is going. And so we have women now that are, are regularly sitting in on our session meetings. Our, our female staff come and they give reports and they, they join in on the discussion of the things that our elders are thinking about. We have female uh, diaconal assistants who are active participants in our deacon meetings. And there are also going to be ministries that God is going to call our women to, to take a high level of ownership and responsibility over. We, ha- you know, we have a school that is one of the biggest ministries of our church that so has almost a $300,000 budget for next year. It's led by a woman in our church, Diana Lim, is a director. She's the one who is forming and building, really, that, uh, that, that ministry. Um, and so the vision of CCB is ultimately under the authority of the elders, but is going to be shaped by both men and together Um, and now there are some ways that we as a church we're still working through this what what does this mean for us there are a number of particulars that because we're not ready as a session I'm not going to give answers to you can come and ask me if there's specific areas of the church but generally speaking the vision is that we would co-labor together as brothers and sisters who have been saved by Jesus there's a partnership we are a team we all need each other and need every member's gifts and wisdom to do the work that God has called us to. And so let me just end with this. In verse 9, when Jesus meets these women, he says to them, greetings. It's a very informal word. It's basically like saying, hi, hey, it's me. And which is to say, um, these women were Jesus' friends. He knew them. He trusted them. He discipled them. And now he was sending them. And so may Jesus' eyes, the lens by which he viewed these women, may those be our eyes as we see the wonderful, wise, gifted women that God has blessed our church with. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that here in this little paragraph in Matthew 28, such profound encouragement, that you are not like the world. You are not like uh, the men in the fall ruling harshly over their wives and the women in their lives. But you build up and you call and you greet and you know and you disciple and you love and you send. Uh, May the love of Jesus, the vision of Jesus for our women shape the culture of our church. Guide us in this process. Give us wisdom that we would trust your word. We'd be faithful to your word and that your word would lead us into the what your gracious kingdom looks like. So we give ourselves to you as your servants. In Jesus' name.